Welcome to Charles Stanley Radio, podcasts providing economic updates combined with some light-hearted conversation during this time of uncertainty. We talk to people from across Charles Stanley to get their insights and recommendations for life in lockdown. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from Charles Stanley. Today I'm joined by John Cudliffe, our Chief Investment Officer, and Will Dobbs, one of our investment managers. Today, we're here to talk about the end of 20th century capitalism, but not in the revolutionary student politics sense, but as professional market observers and participants. There's no doubt there's been a change in the way that capitalism is operating. In the 20th century, capitalism, especially in America, was pretty easy to define. In simplistic terms, it was a sort of corporate Darwinism, where the successful thrived and bad businesses were left to fail. But this has definitely changed this century, and certainly since the financial crisis. Governments and central banks are actively supporting businesses that arguably would have been left to fail in a pure free market capitalist society. Uh, From the bailing out of the banks in 2008 and 2009, to the Federal Reserve's pledge to go to infinity with its quantitative easing programme to rescue its economy from the coronavirus pandemic. The great industrialists of the 19th and 20th century, who are the vanguard of capitalist thinking, probably wouldn't recognise the world that we live in today. So, John, can we have capitalism without default? Uh, You know, when corporate losses are socialised, i.e. borne by the taxpayer, not shareholders, this is obviously the end of capitalist orthodoxy, isn't it? Certainly, it's a significant shift. I mean, if you take a step back, Gary, um, you know, John Maynard Keynes believed that the uh, capitalist economies needed constant management to prevent them from imploding. Um, And this is also true, I think, of of financial markets, where the absence of regulation can lead to a boom and bust cycle. And that's certainly that even Alan Greenspan, the uh, great, um, you know, chair of the US Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank, admitted after 2008. But of course, you know, intervention can create arbitrary winners and losers. And that's something that really is what we're talking about at the moment. Um, And of course, the current chair of the US Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, has said that he wouldn't end quantitative easing, that's printing of money to buy financial assets, simply because he felt that asset markets are too high, or possibly because incentives to economic agents were distorted. Uh, Because, you know, the the central bank would argue, uh, Jerome Powell would argue, that the Fed is there to deliver 2% inflation, stable inflation or full employment. And if it's at the, uh, the cost, if you like, or the price of the potential for misallocation of capital, um, in the short term, that's certainly something that central bankers do seem to be prepared to accept. I do agree. Um, you know, if we're talking about a Darwinian model, clearly capital needs to flow from weak corporates to strong corporates. That's essentially how you know, the corporate sector is, is, is weeded out. And if we're underwriting more broadly the entire corporate sector, clearly that does lead to um, incentives which are skewed. But also longer term, it, it does also mean that traditional capitalist model which is geared towards um, efficiency and productivity, can become um, compromised by you know, the, the prevalence of, of companies which themselves are not particularly productive, which are being kept afloat, if you like, by the ongoing stimulus of um, liquidity and, and very low interest rates. Yeah, 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 do you agree, Will? Yes, I think um, the kind of low interest rate environment has enabled companies for, uh, certainly for the last decade to be very uh, inefficient with their own uh, investments and and, um, and kind of capital allocation. If you think about the way companies, for instance, 
take on huge amounts of debt just to buy back their own shares and, and therefore kind of massage their own kind of earnings figures uh, to make them look better is, is not a particularly efficient use of capital in a kind of traditional uh, capitalist sense. Um, and you've also got the kind of the growth of the kind of large technology companies, for instance, um, you know, supranational bodies, which are uh, not only, you know, effectively not being taxed, uh, you know, the same as their kind of physical uh, counterparts. And if you look at the kind of high street retail as an example, um, you know, again, you've got a very kind of dislodged kind of capitalist system where actually people aren't fighting on the same battlefield and you're having certain companies being um, kind of favoured at the expense of others without any kind of true um, kind of capitalist dynamics really uh, working. Yeah, yeah. so, so it, it seems obvious that capitalism is sort of changing or evolving if we're going to keep with the Darwin metaphor. Um, but, you know, I think now we should look at the causes of this. I mean, I mean, what has sparked this change? I mean, we can go back to the financial crisis, really. And um, but what are your opinions? Let's start with John. Why do you think that capitalism has changed in this, this quite drastic way in the last few years? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question, Gary. Um, you know, I mean, we can go back to the, the GFC, but I think we can go back beyond the financial crisis. I think one of the things that was taking place, certainly um, at the start of the, of the noughties, was a, a rowing back against um, globalisation. Um, you know, in, in, the, in the 20th century, certainly one of the key drivers of, um, of the capitalist model was where appropriate, um, you know, corporates would have a high degree of engagement um, in terms of their business models with the rest of the world as a way of generating additional um, cost savings. Um, but also, as a result of that, having fairly complex supply chains as well, um, you know, and just-in-time um, delivery and, um, and supply-side models as well. And that was all very, very positive. That was a big tailwind in terms of getting um, margins up, increasing efficiencies, uh, and really benefiting from the, um, the arbitrage of, of, of low wage costs in the developing world, basically the developed world. Now, clearly, a lot of that now has, has come to pass. So, so the result of it, I think, is that we've seen a big focus on financial engineering, which is certainly something I think that um, Will has already mentioned. And of course, financial engineering can only take you so far down the path of improving efficiencies in the corporate sector. So, so with that, um, clearly there has been, against the backdrop of sluggish economic growth globally, increased focus of, of squeezing the, the last penny out of every productive unit. Um, and that's caused, against the backdrop of low interest rates, um, you know, significant rise in, in the debt burden that the corporate sector has been taking on board. As Will's already mentioned, that's also boosted appetite in the corporate sector to issue debt, to buy back shares, to boost earnings, of course. But, you know, over the last few years in the US, corporate earnings growth in terms of the all-economy measures has been very sluggish. So you've got this disconnect, if you like, between what the corporate sector's been showing in terms of fractional um, earnings growth and what the broad economy's been showing. And this, of course, gives rise to a much higher degree of vulnerability when there are exogenous shocks. And of course, with interest rates already as low as they are, the, the ability of central banks to create additional stimulus has to take the form of more and more imaginative and you know, interventionist stances. So it's not just the case of lowering interest rates. It's also to do with lowering um, or easing financial conditions more broadly in the economy. So buying corporate bonds, buying fallen angels, those are high yield, those are investment-grade bonds that fall into high-yield or sub-investment-grade space, 
lending directly to the corporate sector. All of these things are things that central banks haven't done in the past. But of course, it's the only way central bankers can think of keeping the show on the road. And of course, the major um, reason for this is post-2009, for a number of years, we had very, very tight fiscal policy. Governments didn't want to spend or invest. And of course, that further put the pressure on central banks to keep the show on the road. And of course, it's further distorted um, you know, a lot of the incentives that the corporate sector and financial market participants have actually been subject to. And this is ultimately why we've ended up where we are. I think if there'd been more focus on a better balance between fiscal and monetary policy post-2009, I don't think we quite have the same distorting effects on um, monetary policy, but also the capitalist system that we now currently have. Mm, which is basically the central bank is uh, federal reserve is is basically supporting the markets and all the capital is now flowing to america so it seems and will well, exactly. so, yeah. yeah so so will what what are your thoughts on this why why have we ended up in this situation well i mean to, to kind of build on what john john's saying i mean you know, alan greenspan i think was the first federal reserve governor to you know to kind of inject so much liquidity into the markets and actually every crisis we've had since then since the 1987 the stock market crash has seemed terminal at the time or potentially terminal that central banks have stepped in and you know we've never really unwound from from that kind of cycle of you know liquidity injections and and um i mean we never kind of get back to what should be a normal situation if you look at the last 10 years that's certainly been the case where interest rates have remained stubbornly low um i think you've also got the fact that inflation has also remained stubbornly low um and there are many reasons why you know that might be but I think, again, kind of technology and, and, and those kind of forces are quite deflationary. And so, therefore, it limits the, you know, the, the efficiency of, of these tools that, um, you know, that central banks are using. So, so it makes every crisis slightly more kind of violent, I guess. Uh, and, and I think this has been you know, pretty true in the last three months where we've seen you know, one of the most violent falls in um, stock markets um, we've ever seen. Uh, or certainly since you know, the 1929 Wall Street crash. And yet... Three months later, we find ourselves, in, you know, on some market levels and market indices back to all-time highs. Um, you know, it's been it's been a, you know, a very violent swing, um, yeah. which which suggests that something isn't isn't working as efficiently as it should do. No, because it's obviously obviously disjointed from reality, isn't it? You look at what's going on in the markets and look at what's going on in in the real world, and there's there's a definite gap there, isn't there? Now, one yeah, of, yeah, John here, so I was going to just quickly interject, I mean, absolutely right, and I think the, the issue really is that, you know, many, many years ago, it was always interest rates that were the key driver, um, if you like, of the stance that the central banks adopted. Now it's, of course, financial market conditions, which take on board um, equity pricing, equity valuation, corporate bond spreads, um, levels of volatility in markets, um, and also, you know, the, uh, the sovereign bond yield. And, and also the, uh, the level of, of interest rates as well. So there's a variety of things. So therefore, it almost makes financial markets, in, in a very broad sense, instruments of monetary policy. Yeah, which sort of brings me on to sort of one of my, my favourite themes at the moment is that, you know, it's an instruments of monetary policy, but, you know, it's also, you know, uh, instruments of foreign policy. Now, this rivalry between China and America is becoming very significant, um, you know, the controversy over Huawei really, you know, it sort of tells its own tale. You know, the Chinese, they've managed to get a significant technological leap in this new uh, 5G, the, 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 the new um, Internet of Things, all the infrastructure that drives this. 
uh, and it's better than anything he's produced in the West. Now, Donald Trump says they, they've done this by stealing technology, which, you know, they have. Uh, but corporate espionage, you know, goes on between American companies as well. But the Chinese have been particularly, uh, you know, stealing the technology from America. Uh, but I think its advantage here is its governance model. It's a centrally planned state and it has representatives on the boards of all these strategic companies. So it can just nudge any of these technologies into the, in the direction that the state wants it to go. So the state planned capitalism is at an advantage than American capitalism, which don't follow anything the state says, because it's able to direct research into a certain area. So this is why American capitalism has to change as well, because this rivalry in this, this area, China's model actually gives it an advantage. So in order to compete with China, you know, America is going to have to direct its companies a little more than it has done in the past. You know, to defeat China, you've got to become more like China as a thing. I mean, do you agree with that? John, let's start with you. Um, yes, I mean, in a sense, but it's, it's ironic. This is happening at a time when, you know, we are seeing much more state-directed um, capital um, in the US via the activities of the Treasury and particularly the US Federal Reserve. Mm. Um, you know, so it's having a direct impact on the corporate sector. And of course, you know, we, we discovered last night that not only is the US Federal Reserve, you know, going to buy um, exchange traded funds of, of corporate bonds, but it's going to be buying corporate bonds directly. Um, so, so in a sense, we are seeing a degree of, uh, for want of a better phrase, socialization of financial markets, which is clearly aligned with a much more interventionist approach to the economy than would have been seen a long time ago. Now, um, you know, this, this sort of general theme of deglobalization, where, you know, global trade is a proportion of global GDP has been falling. And in fact, global trade last year actually declined for the first time in, in many, many, many years. It is also, um, you know, aligned to this tension that we're seeing between, you know, the US and China. So clearly what's going to happen in the world we're moving into is that not just, um, you know, are we going to see much more reliance, if you like, on, on national champions, much more focus on large domestically orientated um, firms. But that's going to be something that is going to be explicitly mandated by um, state support. I certainly think that, you know, putting America first is clearly one of the things that will, will militate against, you know, the traditional um, detente, if you like, which has existed between um, the US and China, but more broadly between um, nations which would have competed in the past, but on, on more friendly terms. So, so you know, it's, it's a world where increasingly there'll be a focus on large domestically orientated firms, which have much less complex supply chains, much less globalization in that regard as well. And obviously COVID-19 plays into that, that narrative because that's clearly an issue, I think, for a lot of companies. And it means that, um, you know, ultimately we're going to be in a world where this will be reflected in lower margins as well. It yeah, really yeah. is a particularly favourable backdrop, I think, in a, in a secular sense. Um, but, but certainly that needs to be borne in mind as well. National champions with simpler business models over complex multinationals, which are going to get caught up in you know, the, the geopolitical environment, which we know is less than helpful. Yeah, great. Well, what do you think about this? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, you're certainly right that China... China's influence on the kind of corporate world is, um, you know, at the moment certainly seems to be working in terms of, uh, you know, onshoring uh, IP, I guess, and um, and kind of using companies for state advantage. Um, you know, we've, we've already mentioned the US is not immune to the, those kind of things anyway. I mean, if you look at the way that 
the the uh, shale gas industry is being supported, for instance, at the moment by um, you know by the central banks and, and the bond buying program. That is clearly a strategic interest for the U.S. government to to have um, its shale industry supported throughout this crisis that we're currently experiencing. And so it's not just China, uh, you know, directing companies for its own state benefit. I think, you know, you've got, um, you know, a level of distrust building with Chinese kind of Chinese forays into capital, you know, the capitalist markets. You look at the way the Chinese companies are trying to, uh, China's trying to take over kind of Western companies by putting people on their boards. You look at what happened at Imagination Technologies uh, mm-hmm. recently. That's, that's something that we're seeing more and more. And I think the more that this, that distrust builds, um, actually, the more that the kind of state-run capitalism that you talk about China being successful at will start to fail effectively because they'll be shut out, um, I, I think, more and more. And also, at the end of the day, entrepreneurialism and uh, innovation are the key to, keys to progress. And so you can, you can kind of steal and you know, cheat your way for a short period of time, but actually that's not going to help you in the long term if you can't actually genuinely innovate and, uh, uh, you know, and, and build better companies and better technologies yourself. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, so anyway, what we've what we concluded so far is that changes are definitely afoot, um, but we're not you know, political or e- economic theorists. We are active investors. Uh, so the important things for us, really, are what are the implications of these changes that are going on in the wider economy, you know, how it's going to shape the investing lands- landscape. Um, Will, do you want to start with that one? So, you know, you are one of our investment managers, actually investing money. Um, what do you think the implications of these changes are going to be? Well, I, th- I mean, I certainly think we are seeing, you know, unprecedented levels of Kind of misallocation of capital in a sense, and we're not only seeing that by you know, central banks and governments, as we've seen, but also by by the investment communities as well. Um, up to up to a point, and you can, we can talk about active versus passive investing at great length. But you know, one crucial thing about passive investing, for instance, and you know, if central banks are buying you know passive investments, is is a kind of indiscriminate allocation of capital to companies. It doesn't matter how good or bad they are. Um, you are just buying. Up, uh, you know, corporate equity and corporate debt indiscriminately, and I think um, you know that's going to have to you know going to have to change in terms of kind of productivity levels. You know, we're seeing um, you know I think uh, during this kind of COVID crisis, for me certainly, I, I I think we're kind of being shunted so many years into the future in a very short period of time that actually, whilst you know in many ways we've seen a um, kind of productivity levels fall over the years, which you know. Is, is a whole big debate in itself as to the reasons why. Um, actually, in many ways, I'm finding myself personally being more productive because actually I'm spending less time traveling, I'm spending less time, you know, meetings which don't, which are unnecessarily long, for instance. You know, now with technology, now everyone's able to use technology better. Actually, we are becoming more efficient and whether that makes us more productive in the long term, uh, you know, who knows? But I certainly think it's, um, you know, potentially a good, a good start. Um, yeah. Now I was thinking yeah. about my own pro- my own productivity yesterday, and it's not just the time because I spend two hours a day commuting. But it wasn't just that two hours; it was the stress of that two hours. You know, had a, an impact longer than the physical time you're travelling. You know, it, it changed your mood, etc., which also makes you and I, I less productive. And I think that I'm more productive at home. Uh, and it's generally, you know, it really is a truth, I find. Um, John, what do you think of this? Yeah, investors, I mean, what, what should we what should be thinking of? Where should we be looking? 
No, it's, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, you know, I agree with both of you in terms of productivity at home. I certainly think that's, um, that is certainly a positive um, shift that's taken place in the current environment. Um, but Will's earlier point about uh, incentives being skewed by, you know, the world we're in, where central bankers aren't prepared to, to see a recession, because clearly that's, that's, that's them failing. So, of course, they keep pumping up the cycle until when we do get a recession, it turns out to be the mother of all recessions. And that's clearly the risk. But, but you know, I mean, a rising tide of liquidity in QE does, does at least in the short term, tend to float all boats, no matter how, how leaky they are. And I think Will's point is that um, there's a lot of leaky boats out there that in the short term mm. have been kept afloat by, by central bank activity. Um, but, but, you know, in, in the current environment, what we're really looking for are, are companies which have a, a track record of being able to, you know, grow their revenues and their earnings at, at an above average rate um, in a way which is visible and is, is less vulnerable to the cycle. Um, mm. And clearly that is something that does tend to command a premium in the, uh, in, in the current market environment and something that, you know, if we are only going to go back to 90, 95% of pre-pandemic levels of activity, by the end of next year, you, you know, you, you, you're going to be a little bit careful about where you deploy your capital. Um, that's what the active investor would certainly be saying. That's certainly what something my team and I would be saying. But of course, still fighting against a tide of, you know, a lot of co corporates um, being kept afloat by a, a very, a very strong central bank put, both in the corporate bond market um, and also by extension, um, you know, in, in the equity market because it's um, that liquidity injection finds its way into risk assets. Mm, yeah, no, that's it's, that's this moral hazard thing that you've been talking about with us for a while, isn't it? You know, moral hazard in economics, it's, you know, when a, an entity like a company has an incentive to increase its exposure to risk because it doesn't bear, you know, the full cost of that risk. And that's what's happening now. I mean, why should companies not take the risk when they're going to be bailed out in the end? Do you think that's going to be an increasing problem, John? Well, it, quite possibly. And of course, you know, in, in the corporate bond market in the US, the, the costs are going to be socialised because ultimately they'll be sitting um, either directly or indirectly on the Fed's balance sheet. Um, in, you know, we, we've known that the Bank of Japan has been buying, um, you know, equity ETFs for, for many years. And they do own a, a decent chunk of the domestic equity market by the, the ETF um, market. So, you know, w whether this in the very long run is a good thing is highly questionable. Because inevitably, it does tend to weigh down on, on productivity um, and the ability of the corporate sector to, to grow with vigour. Um, I, I think also more, more broadly, what it also does is it, it has negative externalities uh, outside of the, the markets and the economy directly via pension fund deficits. You know, one thing that we've not touched on so far is, you know, just how damaging um, super easy monetary policy has been in terms of um, pension deficits, um, because obviously you use a long-dated bond yield to discount pension liabilities, and the lower that bond yield is, the, the, the higher the present value of that liability, and the more you know a, a sponsoring um, firm needs to set aside for, for those pension liabilities. So it does almost feel a little bit like a zero-sum game. Um, you know, pensioners obviously are going to be worse off, uh, particularly those that have a defined benefit scheme. Um, or, or actually lose access to defined benefit scheme because it gets closed. Um, and of course, savers themselves more broadly are going to have to save a lot more money in order to get the same retirement income they got before. So, mm. so the negative externalities, if you like, of this, this shift towards um, more experimentation in the conduct of monetary policy 
is is something that hasn't been fully factored in, I think. Um, the central think... bank is there to keep the show on the road as far as the economy is concerned and prevent um, a damaging tightening of financial conditions that could, um, you know, in the short term, be coincidental with a severe recession. Yeah, Will? Yeah, well, I think this whole idea of more housing is quite interesting because we're actually in a, a kind of period where, as, as you kind of mentioned, corporate boards can take decisions which effectively they don't necessarily need to be successful, uh, you know, because they know that there's always going to be a bailout at, at the end of it. And actually, you know, on the one hand, you've got companies who, who don't want regulation. They don't want to be constrained by you know, governments or you know, supranational bodies telling them that they should be doing this or that. Um, yet at the same time, they're willing to take all the easy money and, um, and know that actually they'll either be too big to fail or they'll be able to ask for a bailout or interest rates will be so low that it doesn't matter how much debt they take on. Uh, at least it won't be their problem. It'll be someone else's problem. Um, and so we definitely need to get out of, out of this cycle. And I think What's been quite interesting recently, some of the debates about the, you know, the kind of COVID crisis and the bailouts. I mean, you look at the airlines, for instance, the airlines have completely seen a, a kind of destruction in their revenues and uh, you know, going cap in hand to the governments asking for bailouts. Um, and you know, initially, the discussion was, well, yes, you can have a bailout, but there'll be um, you know, conditions attached to it to kind of make you more you know, socially responsible and environmentally friendly and everything. And, uh, and, and the kind of pushback against that was pretty quick by, by the yeah. airline industry. And, you know, it's almost the, they want their cake and eat it type of situation. Uh, and that's yeah. just an example. Um, but I do think going forward, these uh, kind of easy conditions will have, uh, will potentially have to have kind of regulation attached to it. And, and, and kind of therefore, we'll get into a situation potentially where uh, companies are favoured if they are doing, if they are being a bit more socially responsible. I think, as opposed to not. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, so I guess we should talk about MMT now, or modern monetary theory. Um, anyone want to have a go explaining that to our listeners in in a neat, punchy paragraph? I mean, I can have a go, Gary. Um, go on, John. I, I guess modern monetary theory um, is where maybe the phrase helicopter money came from. Um, you know, the idea in modern monetary theory is to say that uh, money can be a commodity just like anything else that can be created. So the idea is that central banks print money. Um, that money actually doesn't sit in the financial system. It actually gets created um, and, and goes into the economy more broadly. And that can work if um, central banks are able to keep a lid on interest rates by ensuring that we don't get um, a big rise in bond yields. Uh, at the same time, there's a degree of vigilance on inflation. Um, so, so I guess uh, a proponent of modern monetary theory would say that, you know, if you create money and give it directly to economic agents rather than sort of funneling it through the banking system, uh, what you can then do is uh, is have a much more direct impact on the performance of the economy. And if you can do it in a way that doesn't give rise to a damaging rise in inflation expectations, and you can keep a lid on bond yields, you can avoid the sort of Argentina-type scenario that lots of traditional approaches to, to, to looking at uh, so-called deficit financing would worry about. Mm. It does sound like having your cake and eating it, though. Well, well, it, well it does. But then, you know, lots of people argued that when the, um, you know, the, the quantitative easing programme of the, of the last financial crisis uh, was created, uh, essentially all the money stayed in the financial system. 
And the money stayed in financial system and gave rise to asset price inflation, which mm. clearly benefited better off people. So a proponent of modern monetary theory would argue, well, actually, this gives money directly to consumers and therefore um, has a much more direct impact in terms of, you know, the, 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 the sort of economic well-being of, 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 the, of society and obviously the, the, the general level of activity in the economy. I mean, it will always be a little bit inflationary, but I guess the, the argument is, is that if a central bank is going to be credible in ultimately adjusting monetary policy to prevent that, but at the same time doing its best to keep a lid on bond yields by um, intervening in the bond market, you, you can potentially have your cake and eat it. I mean, I'm personally not convinced, mm. but at the same time, I'm, I'm not convinced that QE to infinity, which is where we seem to be going under yeah. reserve is necessarily a good thing either. No, nope. it's a rock and a hard place, it seems. Well, exactly. Um, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, you could argue why, why allow one degree of monetary experimentation in one direction and not in another and see if that works. Yeah, sure. Um, leaving that to the side for the moment, um, I just want to finally talk about another change that's happening in, uh, you know, investing and capitalism. And that is, you know, Capitalism, you know, businesses used to be run entirely for the interest of shareholders. That is no longer the case. Uh, you know, people want their money to make a difference when they invest now. And, and the social conscience uh, 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 part of investing is becoming really, really important. People want their money to do good. Um, so what is the likely impact of the rise of you know, this responsible investment uh, on the way economic systems and capitalism itself works? You know, is it, is it going to change capitalism? What do you think, Will? Well, I think, kind of touched on it earlier, I think, I mean, it's, uh, I think the, the kind of indiscriminate uh, kind of lending to businesses generally might change. And actually, we might see um, more socially responsible kind of lending. You know, I, you know, businesses that are doing socially responsible things or, or are best in class or whatever, might be favoured by, um, you know, governments and, you know, fiscal, you know, policies and um, potentially monetary policies um, and also uh, investors as well. And so you get the kind of flow of capital going to the companies which are doing a better job. And it's not just a case of um, capitalism in its purest sense. I, a company can make a widget in the cheapest way possible, you know, no matter how bad it might be for environment wages, um, you know, whatever. Actually, investors themselves are now forcing companies to to do things in a responsible way. Um, otherwise, you know, they're not getting the the uh, the investment in the first place. Um, yep. and I think, and I think the globalization argument ties into this as well, because as John was saying, you know, the kind of era of um, effectively very cheap labour, if I put it like that, um, you know, in emerging markets might be. Uh, coming to an end uh, in a very gradual um, basis because because actually we now know more about you know how this cheap labour is is um, brought about. I you know I you've got whole swathes of people living in the world in in kind of poverty, whereas we are kind of buying an iPhone every two two years with no real thought about how it was actually made. And actually, people are now beginning to think about these things, and and there are ways of improving. Uh, the kind of socially responsible aspect to um, you know, the way we invest, without actually, I, I don't think, um, you know, damaging our, you know, our lifestyles. Um, you know, you can certainly, for instance, you know, make products last longer for a start and become less wasteful. And um, uh, and so it's not all uh, regulation 
you know is bad actually i think we'll see um regulation doing you know a, a good job and investors putting their money where where their mouths mouths are yep this is a grassroots things coming up for investors as well so 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 john did this is a positive change that's happening in capitalism at the moment is it we talked about a few negative things in this this podcast but this is a real positive I think, I think uh, broadly, I think it's something to be welcomed. Um, you know, the, the more traditional approach to investing, I think that, that obviously Will, Will mentioned, is that in, in that environment, you know, you don't have to consider um, the fact that the activities that a particular corporate or set of corporates, um, you know, undertake may have a significantly negative uh, outcome for people, you know, more broadly in the planet as well. I mean, that certainly was you know, the traditional capitalist model of the 19th and, and for large swathes of the 20th century. So a move down a more responsible path certainly has to be, has to be welcomed. Um, you know, clearly you can draw a distinction between the, the how and, and the what. Um, the how is much more linked towards, you know, environmental, um, social and governance and, and, and the idea of best in class that you, you focus on corporates within a sector that, that do things better than their peers. And they tend to be better run companies that typically have, um, in the longer run, uh, slightly better financial um, outcomes. And then, of course, you've got the, the what, which is much more to do with focusing on, on business models per se and, and the type of activities that you know, corporates within those, those models undertake. But, uh, but I think that the sense of, of recognizing that there are non-financial metrics which investors need to take on board when they make an investment without necessarily impacting on the longer-term returns that they, they necessarily get, is, is a good thing. Um, you know, focusing on the non-financial metrics can certainly lead to a, a better recognition of, of some of the risks that businesses run, which I think mm. is certainly key. And we've seen examples of that in the context of, of BP and the Deepwater Horizon disaster that took place a number of years ago. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, certainly in an ESG context, I think it is possible to have regard for the impact of activities on, on, on the planet and, and, and people more broadly without necessarily sacrificing returns in those companies that you invest in. Um, clearly, the more you go to the right in terms of the capital spectrum towards um, sustainable or impact investment, and clearly there will be maybe some, some sacrifice of investment returns. But that's certainly something that some um, governments are moving towards as well, and there's a clear green agenda in Europe as well. So Anyone that I think ignores this general move towards having some regard both for, for how companies engage in their activities and also what they do is very much rowing against the tide. And I think, I think the grassroots aspect of it is quite important as well that you mentioned because actually consumers, you know, it, more and more these days do care about buying products or you know, buying services which are dem demonstrably greener or um, you know, better socially than, um, uh, than alternatives, which perhaps wasn't the case 15, 20 years ago when it was a kind of minority of people who would, uh, you know, do that. And, you know, they'd be, um, you know, slightly dismissed, I think, as kind of tree huggers or whatever it is. Whereas now we're all, to some extent, uh, tree huggers. And, um, and therefore, um, actually, you know, as John says, you don't have to give up financial returns because actually there is a big um, incentive for companies to cater for uh, those opinions. Yep. Excellent. Well, well, thanks very much, guys. That was a fascinating conversation. Um, do you, either of you have anything else to add? No, no well, just one final comment for me, I think. I think that this whole um, experience that, that we've all had to um, 
you know, go through uh, in, in the context of the recent pandemic has made people focus, I think, a lot more on what's responsible and potentially what's sustainable. And certainly the idea that um, any economic model has to centre around consumption at all costs, I think, is something that people are challenging as well. And I think that probably tends to, to, to lead people down the, the more responsible rather than traditional um, approach to investing. Possibly, you know, more people will also move further to the right in terms of sustainable and impacts as well. Brilliant. Will, do you have anything to add? Uh, not, not on top of what we've already mentioned. Yeah. You know, all, all, I can, all I can say is we're certainly, uh, from client's perspective, um, we are seeing a much more, much more interest in a kind of socially responsible capitalism uh, and, and companies demonstrating more social responsibility, um, uh, amongst other things, than perhaps, uh, you know, they were 10 years ago. Excellent. And long may that continue. Um, thanks, John. Thanks, Will, for joining us. I'd hope you enjoyed this discussion. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Charles Stanley Radio. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it offered a small escape from life under lockdown. Please subscribe to be kept up to date with our latest releases. If you have any questions or comments about the content covered in today's episode or any questions you'd like us to address in future episodes, then please do email these to events at charles-stanley.co.uk. Once again, thank you for listening and as always, stay safe. The value of investments can fall as well as rise. Investors may get back less than invested. Past performance is not a reliable guide to the future.